Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. A few months ago, I happened to be in the Boston area, and a past podcast guest, and now a friend, Mario Pita, took me around the town and suggested we also visit Lexington and Concord. Stopping in at the Buckman Tavern, which is the Lexington Tourist Center, we met a wonderful storytelling woman named June Bear, who related with such passion the events of April 19th, 1775. I had to have her on the program. This is part two of June's telling, so if you've just tuned in and you have no idea what we're talking about, I would for sure jump back to episode 172 to get the front end of the events we're going to conclude just about now. When we last left off, the Redcoats were leaving Lexington and heading to Concord, still trying to locate the elusive colonist store of gunpowder and weapons. Concord. They do start searching all the homes in that in town. They do send a contingent of men to cross the North Bridge. They leave about 90 men at the North Bridge. The rest go across the bridge to search Colonel Barrett's farm. And they're not having a lot of luck finding anything. As I said, we had had warning the week in advance, so things were hidden throughout town. There are stories that at one point before the troops arrived, we didn't have everything hidden. So a couple of men went out with their horses and started plowing the fields. It wasn't early spring for us. So they go out there and start plowing the fields. And in the furrows, we start hiding stuff. Some of the muskets and some of the other provisions and that that we have in the furrows. And apparently the men continue plowing out there all morning uh, just to make it look good. Because then you've got all these red goats going through and looking at those crazy men who are plowing and think nothing that we are hiding stuff out there. (laughs) So we got that, as I said, the men are searching the town at the North Bridge. You've got 90 men at the North Bridge. There's a little hill at the North Bridge, and at the top of the hill, there are about 400 militia gathering there. There are about six towns who have their militia. There's Concord there. There's Lincoln, which is the town in between Lexington and Concord. And there are four other towns. Their men have arrived. We're standing there. We're watching, we're just basically watching and seeing what they're, they're doing. We watch the men march off to Barrett's farm. We're observing the 90 around the bridge. We know there are several hundred more going through the town, searching for stuff. Now, the men who are searching through town, they're having a tough time because we hit a lot of stuff. They're basically not finding anything. And this is one thing that I often say is I don't really understand. I think it's a male thing. But anyway, in their frustration, they do gather some wooden cannon truncheons and some other wooden objects, and they start a bonfire. And that's why I think it's a male thing, because being female, if I'm frustrated, the first thing I do not think to do is start a fire. (laughs) But apparently these men did. Mm -hmm. But they started a bonfire. Now, a spark from that bonfire did set the meeting house roof on fire in Concord. Uh, And to Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith credit, he did line up the Redcoats in a bucket brigade and they did put out the fire so the meeting house was saved. But the 400 men standing up on the, the hillside, they don't know that. All they see is smoke rising from the center of town. They figure the Redcoats are burning the town down and they are going into the center of Concord to protect the property. It's our property. We are protecting it. So they start marching down towards the North Bridge. Now, here things are a little reversed because we've got 90 redcoats now to 400 militia. 
Now, those 90 Redcoats have been told we're nothing but a bunch of disorganized farmers who shoot at us, we'll run scared. Uh, a lot of that had to do with previously during the French and Indian Wars, apparently we didn't impress the British military with our skills or our dedication to the war. I guess a lot of it had to do, it wasn't our war, it was Britain fighting the French, but so they didn't really think too much of our militia. So you've got 90 men there. They're looking at us. We start marching down towards them. What they're looking at is a column of 400 men. They're marching towards them. Even though we're in farm clothes, we are marching in formation. And at the head of our column, we put the Minutemen from Acton. And the Minutemen from Acton, their captain was Captain Isaac Davis. And Captain Davis was a blacksmith. And where this is important is Captain Davis had outfitted his whole company with bayonets. So you've got 90 men looking at this column of men, been in farm clothes, but they're marching like an army at the head of the company with bayonets attached, which means we're ready for battle. And so what they do is they try to all get onto the same side of the bridge across the river from the advancing militia. They fire two volley shots of warning. With the second round of volleys, they do kill Isaac Davis and another Acton Minuteman. And it's at that point that... John Buttrick, who was a major in our militia, gave the order for us to fire at the Redcoats. We do fire. We do kill two Redcoats, mortally injure a third. And then we watch the rest of the Redcoats retreat and run to the um, center of town with the rest of the Redcoats there, the rest of the soldiers. Basically, our militia, one, we're amazed we won. And two, the reality is this really sinking in because we just fired at Redcoats and we were ordered to fire at them. And as anyone who comes to visit us here in Lexington will let you know is in 1775, we were British. We just fired on our own army and we fired on our own army under orders. That's really starting a revolution. the troops are frustrated they didn't find anything it's a failed mission smith lines them up and starts marching them out of concord i get outside of concord up to a place in between just outside of concord which is known as miriam's corners and at that point there is a militia coming in from the town of bilrica they had heard about the fight on lexington green and heard about the men that died on our green had not heard about what happened at the North Bridge. So they started firing on the Redcoats because they didn't feel it was right that Redcoats should leave unaccosted because basically we just stared and watched them leave until Bill Ricca showed up. And once Bill Ricca started shooting, everybody started shooting. So from that point on, the Redcoats were now under constant attack for about seven to ten hours. Depending on what side you're on, it was either known as the bloody retreat or running battle. But that was kind of as a retreating back. They're heading out. And the British troops, they're a little um, upset with us because we're not fighting the way a gentleman fights in war. They're used to lining up and firing. We, on the other hand, the colonists, all our militias and that, are fighting much like the way the Indians had taught us during the French and Indian Wars, what today would be called guerrilla warfare. We're hiding behind rocks. 
If there's trees there, we're hiding behind them. If there's buildings, we're hiding around them, and we're firing at them. If we shoot and we're standing up, we may drop down to reload. We don't remain standing. So it's they're under constant attack. So they're constantly sending out flankers and all that, trying to flush us out of the, the trees and that sort of thing. They're retreating back. Also, while they're retreating back, our militia learns that the redcoats, the regulars, the common soldier, they're taught to fight and to follow orders. They're not taught to think for themselves. Officers give orders. And if you shoot officers, redcoats don't know what to do. And officers are easy to find because they're on horseback. They have these lovely high hats with feathers. And they have these lovely white cross pieces on their uniform, which makes a nice thing to aim at. So we start taking pot shots at their officers. And I'm told that by the end of the retreat, when the officers and the whole, all of the, the regulars that came out make it back to Boston, by the time they get back, there's only one officer that we have not killed or wounded. So gentlemen's war, they wouldn't fire upon officers? No, you wouldn't do that. The officers are standing at the side giving the orders. You're firing at the regular guy, the, the common soldier. So, And that's one of those things. As they're retreating back, they're coming back through Lexington. As they're approaching Lexington, a lot of the sergeants are losing control of the men because you can imagine you're, you're getting pot shots taken. You've been out all night. You've been up for 24 hours. You've had a failed mission. You're starting to head back. And there's all these angry locals shooting at you. So they're basically losing control of the men. As they're coming back towards Lexington, earlier I mentioned that Smith, when he found out that he was no longer a secret, had sent back a request for reinforcements. Lord Earl Percy had arrived in Lexington with a thousand men, was seeing what was happening, that the regulars that were sent out, the redcoats that were sent out, were disorganized, under attack. When Percy came out, he came out with two cannons. One of them he put about a half a mile from Monroe Tavern. Monroe Tavern is another tavern we had here in town. He stuck it there. He fired that cannon. That cannon went about a half mile through the center of town towards our meeting house. It went through one wall of our meeting house and out the other. And it did exactly what he wanted it to do. The militia fell back to reevaluate because up until this point, we've been fighting muskets and all of a sudden we have cannon firing at us. So when we fall back, Percy sets up his perimeter, what's left of the 800, retreating back of them. He takes them behind his line, and Monroe Tavern he uses as a field hospital and a headquarters. So they're for, there for about an hour, an hour and a half, and he would have selected Monroe Tavern because, one, it's a tavern, so it's a business, because part of their orders when Gage sent out all of his men to Concord was they were not to destroy private property. This was a business, so he could take it over. It wasn't private property. Wasn't a colonist's house, and being a tavern, it would have a store. It would have more food than in the average house. Plus, it would have more linens that we could use as bandages. So, you could take care of the men. And after about an hour and a half, they then continued the retreat back to Boston. And so, but, even as they went back to Boston, they were picked off. Is that correct? Oh yeah, all the way back. And too, when they were retreating back, until they met up with Percy, they were starting to run out of ammunition like their black powder and bullets because when they went out they weren't supposed to engage with anyone they were supposed to be a secret so they're supposed to go out destroy what's in Concord get back they were not supposed to engage with anyone so they they only brought I think it's something like 36 
would have been like 36 cartridges, so musket balls and powder and that that they could fire off. So they're under attack. They get to Lexington from Concord. They're running out of ammunition. On our side, any of our militia who are firing, if we start to run out of black powder or musket balls, we just head home. Because there are so many towns responding, so many men responding, that there's somebody fresh to replace us, and we're a lot more rested than they are. That's usually the disadvantage of any invading force, so to speak. You know, they're, they're not on their home turf. Everything is, is very difficult to get, just even food. Yes. That's one of those things where I like to tell people what's going on, like, in terms of numbers of responding, is when the troops get to Lexington, we have... By the end of our skirmish here in Lexington, we have about 80 men who had responded. In Concord, we had the 400. By the time the troops were leaving Concord, there was about 1,000 men had responded. When they get to Lexington, when the Red Coast have retreated back to Lexington, so we got our 800 retreated back, they're met up with 1,000. So there's about 1,800 Red Coats now. And by the time the Red Coats get back to Boston, that evening, and the safety of Boston Harbor, there's about 4,000 men from around Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, who had responded to the, to the all those riders that had rode out and spread the alarm. And by the end of the week, there's been about 10,000 men had responded from the colonies, and they would start the encampment around Boston and the siege of Boston. The English then, the loyalists. We're in Boston with that encampment around them for about a year before they left. first shot that was fired in Lexington that nobody knows which side actually pulled the trigger, that was the shot heard around the world, as they say? All depends if you live in Lexington or Concord. <laughs> okay. Explain that. <laughs> that shot was the first shot. So we here in Lexington, we did have the first shots. The shot in Concord, that shot was ordered. Ours, we don't know who fired it. It just set off the battle and actually... I'm told militarily what happened in Lexington really wasn't a battle. It was a skirmish because neither side ever got the order to fire. Concord was a battle because we were given the order to fire. So technically, I guess their shot is more of starting a revolution because we were ordered to fire on our own army. I'm told somewhere the conflict kind of comes is for the first little while it was Lexington and Concord. Then in 1789... George Washington, who was our president at the time, he was doing a lot of tours around all of the colonies, trying to keep the Union together, trying to hold us together as a country. And he did come here to Lexington. He didn't sleep here, but he did eat here. And he ate at Monroe Tavern. And he came here saying that he wanted to see the field where the first blood was shed. And he came and saw Lexington Green, and he never went to Concord. And apparently that upset Concord. Are you two towns still rivals to this day? Is oh, the, yeah. Because there was that started, the whole thing, Concord started promoting their shot a little more. Then for the 100th anniversary of April 19th, Concord did have Ralph Waldo Emerson born and raised and lived in Concord. And he did happen to write 
the um, conquered him, and it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who coined the phrase shot heard round the world, and he referred it to the shot in Concord, not to ours in Lexington. So, yeah, there's been quite a rivalry for a couple hundred years as to who had the shot. So Lexington well, looks at Concord as a bunch of Johnny-come-latelys? And... Yeah. Well, <laughs> technically, yeah, you can say they had a shot that started the revolution because they were ordered to fire. But we had the first shot. They had to go through Lexington to get to Concord. And we did have eight of our own men die and ten injured. So we shed blood for that. As I mentioned before, you know, growing up in school, you're taught a certain thing, and then of course a lot of things end up being in the popular culture and in the, in the popular like conscience mind. What are a couple of pet peeves for you as someone who daily talks with tourists and that type of thing? What, what are things you almost have to clear up daily? Everyone knows Paul Revere's ride. There's the one where he did not ride through the towns yelling, "The British are coming! The British are coming!" One, he would not have said, "The British are coming," because we, like I mentioned earlier, we all considered ourselves British. So it'd be like Paul Revere riding through the town today yelling, the Americans are coming, the Americans are coming. So what he would have said when he was riding through town would have been like, the regulars are out. But he wouldn't have been yelling that through the street. So as we mentioned at the beginning, not everybody was a patriot. There were those who were loyalists. And if Paul Revere rode through the streets yelling that the regulars were out, he would soon be captured. There'd be people, not only the British patrols, but loyalists looking for him. So what he did is when he went from town to town, he would go to a house of a patriot that he knew. He would then tell that patriot, and that patriot would call out the militia and send out a rider. It's a beautiful image of someone riding through town yelling, but that really didn't happen. Paul Revere did not sit in Charlestown waiting to see whether or not the troops were going to cross the river or go out he he wasn't the one waiting for the lights he was the one who was telling what lights to put up there those are those are two of the fun ones that are kind of out there a lot of this myth especially about paul revere came from the poem by longfellow longfellow wrote it during the civil war longfellow would always wanted to write something like about a hero how a single man could make a change it's my understanding that lincoln had wanted to and lincoln had requested he'd write a poem to show that one man could make a difference so it was written more for the civil war to I guess have men respond because you could make a difference. You could make a change. Just one single person could make a difference. But it was the Civil War it was written for, not really about the Revolutionary War. I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, when I met you, you were in the tavern. Well, not you weren't sitting there drinking, but it's become a the tourist center now. And right. uh, of course, you meet all kinds of people coming in. What are some of the things that have surprised you about tourists? We do get international visitors. I think that's slowly going down a little bit. We do get a lot of domestic travel, a lot from other states. California and Texas are two of the biggest states that we get visitors from, but then they are two of our most popular states. I'm always amazed at like the number of school groups that come out, and it's one of those things where we, 
we will get a lot of people coming out saying that coming out to see Lexington Green is on their bucket list. It's one of those things that they've always wanted to do. There's a lot of criticism. I guess every young generation gets criticized by the, the older ones that they're not being taught history or they're not well aware of it or they're at least they maybe they're not even interested. Do, do you find that to be true? Some of the things that we discover, we've learned as we're, school groups do come through or if you're just talking with families who are out visiting and that is revolutionary history, the whole start of our country, it doesn't go into a lot of detail, and even less so once you get out of New England. Basically what we discovered, depending on where you go to school in the country, where you live in this country, you kind of get more of a better understanding of the history of where you live than about more or less the revolution. We're a paragraph or two of what has to be covered, and that's it. Here in New England, we might get a little bit more because we were a little more involved, but the further west you go, you're getting more about how those, the history of those states and what happened. I always find that amazing. There's not as much that I thought there would be about April 19th and the whole Revolutionary War out there. The further away you get from New England, the more you get more local, I guess I'd say local history. I remember right. even talking with you in the shop that I know when I first finally heard this story, and even talking to you, I picked up some details I hadn't heard before. I was like, "This is great!" You know, had it been told in that manner when I was a kid, I would have it definitely would have stuck. I would have loved it. Instead, you know, we were made to memorize dates or you know names that were very wooden. There was nothing exciting about them. Yeah, one of the struggles as a guy, you're trying to make them realize as you get older, you realize that these were real human beings, and they had real lives and there were characters and there were great stories and if you can try to explain and tell people all about who these people were and a little bit about their life and what they did it really does make it seem more alive and it's always great if you got a school group and you can kind of engage them and get them to remember things i remember once i had a school group and the one thing that one kid took away is the Redcoats, when they marched out, they had like what was called a straight boot. So those leather shoes that they wore out, they didn't have a right or left foot. It was just a straight foot. And the British troops were told that every day they had to switch the shoes. So they never got a curl in their shoes. So it always looked very nice. And I always thought that was kind of neat that that's the one thing. This one young gentleman took away from my talk is that they had these crappy shoes. <laughs> but it's one thing that may you know, engage him a little more about learning about right. what the people then happened and get a little bit more of the story. Well, no wonder they lost the war. You got to have good shoes for any of it. <laughs> Next question. Uh, I went over to England uh, maybe for a few weeks at one time, and I remember sitting on a boat to get from London to uh, France, and uh, I was talking to a guy, and, and an older guy, and he asked where I was from, and I said America, and he, he said, oh, and, and he started talking about the American Civil War, and he knew all these things I had never heard, and I remember thinking, like, man... How is that possible? Here's this British guy knowing more than I do. And then uh, I found myself in a reverse situation when I was living and working in China. 
and uh, I was way into Chinese history, and I was talking to a, a Chinese national about some part of their history, and the uh, person I was talking with said at the very end of my big rant, "I'm very ashamed I didn't know that." <laughs> you know, I'm. <laughs> So what I find fascinating about you is you're Canadian. You're not even a Yankee. <laughs> That's true. I moved here from Canada with my my husband had got a promotion and got a job down here. And we moved down, me, my husband, and my daughter, we moved down here seven years ago. And when we moved down here, that kind of the ongoing joke is when we finally picked a place to live. It was based on my daughter was going into high school uh, she was going into her sophomore year at high school. We're looking for a school system. We had several towns picked out. We'd come here to Lexington, went through the center of town, had a nice feel about the town. So we're going to move to Lexington. It wasn't until after I selected Lexington, we moved here, that I realized Lexington had such a role in American history. Because to me, Lexington was Lexington, Kentucky. Because in Canada, that's the one we all know. Sure. It's the horse races and that, but not here. So then I found out the role it played in American history. And then you go and you stand on the green and you stand there and you think about the men lined up there and what they were standing there for and how they would have felt. And I just fell in love with the history and been learning all about it. I will admit that I'm really good at April 19th. Once you start getting past April 19th in the Revolutionary War, I'm, I couldn't really name all the battles in that for you, but I'm really good on April. I love April 19th, and I love sharing the history with people here. Since I have you on the line, is there something about Canadian history that you're passionate about and you wish that more people knew about? Things that I learned from coming down here that I hadn't really learned all that much about was things like the French and Indian Wars. Didn't really know all that much about it. It wasn't until I kind of came here and put things in context that I realized in the middle of the French and Indian Wars is the Plains of Abraham, which is where the British troops defeated the French and Canada became English and not just the French. So we know all about that one battle, but I never had it put in context as it was a much larger battle. And it was that battle that then led to the American Revolution. It was like, yeah. all I knew on Plains of Abraham, Montcalm and Wolfe met on the Plains of Abraham. They both died. The English won. We're all good. Then all of the French military and all of, any French aristocrat, anybody with money who was left in Quebec or anything like that, they all went back to France. So now you've got all the, the peasants here living in this country and now they're being ruled by the English which I'm sure they didn't like I'm pretty sure the English and the French don't really like each other right. oh man they still don't <laughs> yeah that was another thing I learned while I was in England <laughs> kept talking about the frogs I was like who yeah. <laughs> yeah there's still kind of tension there in Canada between the English and the French well any final thoughts just as an aside the one thing that I thought was really great like I said we've been here for seven years after we got our green cards and waited the time period, we have become U.S. citizens. And what I always think is neat, and I had to kind of get my husband to get excited by this because he's not as into the history as I am. He comes and works and goes and that sort of thing, is last year, in 2018, on April 19th, I became a U.S. citizen. Really? Now, yeah. Did you time it out like that, or was it just a coincidence? No. Total coincidence. It wasn't planned. It was just we submitted our papers, got accepted, went through like all the interviews, got the date that we were going to be, where we had to go to get sworn in, and it was like 
It's April 19th. That's Providence. I'm yeah. Sorry. Well, that's wonderful, June. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It, this was fun. If you've still got a Jones for history and localities, for sure have a listen to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 163, where we wander around the Jamaica Plain area of Boston, or 158, where we get a good primer in below-the-radar black American history. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side.